Okay, y'all, open your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're continuing through um, the Gospel of John. All right, so there's a guy named Gary Haynes, and he wrote an article for Natural History Magazine. It's a story, a sad story, about the four-year epic drought that struck Africa uh, during 1981 to 1984, and he zeroed in or wrote of the ordeal that went on in Zambia, oh no, in Zimbabwe. And Haynes followed, what he ended up doing was following some 20,000 elephants during that four years of this epic drought. Uh, he did so in what was called Zimbabwe's Hoang National Game Reserve. Um, and during those four years, he watched as water source after water source was reduced to dust. And at the end, there was only uh, one source of water left in the whole preserve. It was eight sinkholes that had subterranean waters under the ground, and there was only way you could get water. And only animals that could get access to those subterranean waters survived. The last animals. Who do you think were the last animals to survive? Let's take a guess. Elephants. Elephants were the last animals to survive the four-year drought. Uh, how did they? It's incredibly fascinating. What they ended up doing is they started laying on their sides, thrusting their trunks down into these sinkholes five to eight feet deep to suck up water. The young ones that couldn't, the older ones would suck it up and then give it to the young ones. Uh, but eventually, as you know, the water levels are going to sink below the length of their trunks. And eventually that happened, and this Gary said that he watched and stood there helplessly at one sinkhole as he watched 200 majestic beasts lying on their sides, perishing from thirst. Two years later, he went back to the dreadful place. He was just captured by it, captivated. He couldn't shake it out of his system, couldn't get it out of his head. He had to go back. And so he goes back to the dreadful place, and this is what he saw. He said it was a graveyard of bleached bones of 200 elephants searing in the sun. I mean, what a picture. You know, the Bible documents an even greater thirst and an even greater drought this way. My soul thirsts for God. In our passage today, the Apostle John simply records the worst drought this way. They have no wine. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars 
there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page, and Holy Spirit, would you give clarity to the mind and realness to the heart. Would you grant that we experience this text, its terrain, its wonders, its valleys, uh, its power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, look at verse 3, y'all. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Uh, eventually, um, eventually, life runs out of wine. Wine is a symbol in the ancient world. It's a symbol of solid joy. In the ancient world, wine and solid joy were married or connected. Uh, a solid joy that was so solid, it filled every hole in your heart, in your life, in your relationships. It was a joy so solid that it would reach and renew uh, marriages and homes, and it would move into neighborhoods and communities. It was a solid joy that would hit work, and it would hit art, and it hit literature, and it would hit music. It was a solid joy that always filled, always overflowed, always gave substance, always gave a tangible reality to meaning. It was a solid joy that, that filled all things, every relationship, every nook and cranny, every place in all creation. It was a solid joy that heals all things and completes all things. It's, the Old Testament would describe it as shalom, a peace where you were whole and you were complete because you were solid with joy. It was a joy that gives meaning to all things. It energized all things. It made everything electric and electrifying. It flourished everything. It was a solid joy that filled every void in life and healed every hole. The connection between wine and joy was so complete in the ancient world, so assumed, so given, so you can't have one without the other, that the ancient Jewish teaching on holiness called the Pessa said this. It said, look, there is no rejoicing save with wine. The connection was so complete. So when the mother of Jesus says, Listen, they have no wine. That's a big deal. Because joy just left a wedding. There's more. John intentionally, remember we've talked about, John intentionally patterns his writing, his gospel right now, patterns the first week 
of Jesus's ministry on the planet. This is the first week we're in right now. This is the seventh day. This is the first week where Jesus now begins his ministry and he's starting to reach the first people on the planet. And John says he wants to he wants to make it intentionally patterned after the first week of original creation, which is stunning because basically what he's saying, he's saying, look, Jesus is making all things new. He's recreating the world. So what do we know that happens in Genesis chapter 2? Do you remember those of you that have a little more Bible trivia than the others? Do you know what happens in Genesis chapter 2? You have the first week of creation, Genesis 1. Then it zeroes in on real life, like real life that you and I know it, real relationships, real way life is going to work. Here's how life functions and works after the, the incredible miracle of the seven days of creation. Do you remember what happens in Genesis 2? A wedding. The wedding of Adam and Eve. And oh, what a wedding, y'all. It was a wedding, and everything about it had solid joy, but it had more than that. It was a static, solid joy. It was a joy that was uninterrupted. There were no interruptions. In fact, Adam, he's so beside himself, he goes at this, this wedding day, he sees his bride, and he goes, at last, he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, I really like her. But this wedding in Canaan, this wedding in the world that Jesus has come to, this world and its first real life example, its first way that you and I do life in this world, the first thing that's said about this wedding is they have no wine. Because there's something fundamentally wrong with our marriages. There's something fundamentally wrong with our homes. There's something fundamentally wrong with our personal lives. There's something fundamentally wrong with work. There's something fundamentally wrong with our art and our music and our literature and our movies and our sunsets and our walks on the beach. There's something fundamentally Mentally wrong with life itself. There is no wine. There is no wine. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, Jesus. Eventually, life runs out of wine. And some of you this morning know that. And some of you this morning feel that. Some of you know your marriage has run out of wine. Some of you know your home has run out of wine. Some of you feel deep in your bones that your friendships or lack of friendships have run out of wine. You know that the school, your church, your work, your places of fitness and your places of entertainment have run out of wine. Most of you, some of you feel deep in your bones that the people and places that used to be safe have run out of wine. You know that those things that you have loved once to do, you loved once to enjoy, have run out of wine because eventually life runs out of wine. Eventually, your dreams don't come true. Eventually, 
the stuff you've been told since you were a little kid that you can be and do whatever you want to be and do, you eventually realize does not come true. And if I'm the first one saying to that, I'm sorry, your parents should have told you that a long time ago. No matter what your teachers say, and no matter what the commercials say, and no matter... The goal isn't to be whatever you want to be or do. The goal is to be what God has made you to be and what God calls you to do, right? Eventually, we fail. Eventually, you get your heart broken. Eventually, you suffer. Eventually, we're not in control. Eventually, you can't fix your life and you can't fix your relationships. Eventually, life runs out of wine. And some of us here, we feel that. We know that. You know that. But there's another group of us here. And the other group of us here are thinking this. You know what, Jeff? I knew this. I knew that only neurotic Christians think that way. You know, I know, you, and, and you're thinking, I know you neurotic Christians that you are so concerned about being holy enough, so concerned about being devoted enough, so concerned about being spiritual enough, so concerned about fixing yourself, fixing your marriages, fixing your kids, fixing culture, fixing politics, fixing the dog for crying out loud. That's why you feel this way. Only you kind of people feel this way that life has run out of wine. First thing I want to say to you is, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of crazy Christians around. The second thing the text actually says to you, but you know, you know in your heart it's true. You know life has run out of wine. There's an atheist, well-known atheist in England, a guy named Theodore Darrell It's an interesting name. I took for a long time trying to figure out, how do you say that name? Uh, and he's a thoughtful atheist, which means he doesn't believe in God, and he's very thoughtful about it, which is why what he says next is, well, really thoughtful. He says, it is not as easy as one might suppose to rid oneself of the notion of God. You see how honest he is? He goes, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that he exists. I don't believe there's any reason to think that. But it's awfully hard to avoid it. It's awfully hard to do that. It's awfully hard to discard that. And then he explains why. He says, look, few of us, especially as we grow older, are entirely comfortable with the idea that life is full of sound and fury but signifies nothing. However much philosophers tell us that it's illogical to fear death, that it's only, the only thing you need to fear is the process of dying that we should fear. But he says, but people still fear death as much as ever. In like fashion, how many times philosophers say, it's up to us, it's up to ourselves, no one else to find the meaning of life, yet we continue to long for a transcendent meaning and purpose. This is an atheist. He goes, tell us that we should not feel this longing is a bit like telling someone in the first flush of love that the object of their affections is not worthy of them. And here's his famous quote. The heart hath reasons that reason knows not of. In other words, what he's saying, Dalrupal is saying, the heart knows there is no wine. But there should be. Every human heart knows there is no wine, but there should be. 
Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Eventually, life runs out of wine, and the question is why? Why does it? The answer is in verse 6. Now, there were six stone jars. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This is 120 to 180 gallons of water in the middle of a party. I mean, think about this. Why are these six huge, ugly stone jars decorating this wedding? Can you imagine something like this today? Oh, I would love to see this happen today. Whatever happened to flowers in this world? Why didn't they have flowers? Can you imagine a wedding coordinator coming up to, hey, Miss, Mrs. Smith, this is the, the mother of the bride, and Miss Baylor bride, uh, this venue, it requires that you have six ugly stone water jars that carry 130 to 180 gallons of water right by the groom's cake. I mean, this is absurd. It's absolutely crazy. So what's going on here? Why is this happening? You know why this is happening? Why is this happening? To remind everyone at the party, you're still dirty. To remind everyone when you're enjoying the sunset, everyone at the highest moments of joy, everyone at the moment of sheer pleasure, you're still dirty. To remind everyone in... Even in your wedding, you're still dirty. That the stain of sin covers everything, stains everything. It stains the wonderful steak you had at the expensive restaurant. It stains all the thrills and joys that you have in life and the abilities and talents that you have. The stain of sin runs deep and it stains all of life in such a way that life runs out of joy. Life runs out of wine. And so we lose interest in careers and we lose interest in school and we lose interest in all kinds of things. In the middle, even when you're at the party, verse 6 is saying you're still dirty. Even when you're at the high point of some of the greatest things that can go on in life, verse 6 is saying you're still dirty. Eventually, life runs out of wine. Why? Because the stain of sin runs deep. It stains every area of our life, every relationship, every place, every neighborhood, every community, every institution, every policy, every government, every church, every home, every marriage, every heart. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Eventually, life runs out of wine. But Jesus doesn't. He turns, he turns water into wine. He goes where there is none and makes it so. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine. I mean, what we're watching happening right now in this text is that we're watching Jesus in the middle of a place where everyone feels dirty, in the middle of a place where the stain of sin has gone so deep, and in the middle of it, he releases solid joy into the world. 
He releases solid joy where there is no joy. He releases solid joy where there is none, where it's gone empty. He releases solid joy in the midst of sin that stains everything. In other words, Jesus in this story is ending the drought of joy. This is breathtaking. This means that Jesus This means that Jesus releases solid joy into the drought of joy in your heart right now. That Jesus releases solid joy into the drought of your relationships right now and your career and your school and your gifts and talents and abilities and the struggles you have on the athletic field and the tensions in the classroom and the conflict among friendships and the heartache at home. Jesus releases solid joy. He releases it into ordinary, normal, boring life and makes it life. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Eventually, life runs out of wine, but Jesus doesn't. Look at verse 11. This, the first sign of his signs. What's the first sign of his signs? The first sign of his signs, turning water into wine. So it's taking something that's not and making it something completely different, that Jesus has the power to go where there is none and make it something, to go where there is absence and make a presence, to go where there's a void and fill it up. He has that power. This is the first of his signs, and he did it at Cana and Galilee. He ends the drought of joy with his first sign. Now, what is a sign? This is so important. What is a sign? A sign is a, a controlling image, a controlling picture of who Jesus is. In other words, who is Jesus? What's he really like? A sign says, this is what he's like. So you come and you say, I just don't know who he is. What's he really like? Can I trust him? Who is this? What's real Christianity about? What did he come to do? This first sign gives you the clearest picture into who Jesus is and what he came to do. It says, if you want to know who he is, here he is. If you want to know what he's like, here's what he's like. If you want to know what he came to do, here's what he came to do. Real Christianity, the real Jesus, turns water into wine. He releases solid joy into hearts, lives, and relationships. He ends the drought of joy. One scholar asked, well, why would this be his inaugural act? Why would this be his first sign? Why would Jesus, to convey what he had come to do, choose to turn 150 gallons of water into really good wine in order to keep a party going? Why would this be his inaugural act? And the answer from the text is, because he's the master of the feast. He's the master of joy. He's joy himself. He's the wine of life. In other words, joy is so powerful. It's so good. He did not entrust it to you and me. He didn't say, hey, you guys go generate your joy now. 
You go make yourself an identity. You generate meaning in life. You find a solid substance that reaches you, hits your heart, moves into your relationships, goes to your neighbors, changes culture. He didn't leave solid joy in our hands. He has the joy and he gives it. He's the master of it. He fills all voids with his joy. He heals all holes with his joy. This is who he is. This is what he's like. If you came in with another notion of who he is and what he's like, this passage just says you need to rethink him. He's not like what you think. He's like this. Well, I have such hard thoughts about who he is, and I have such hard thoughts about Christianity. This is who he is. Bertrand Russell, considered by many to be the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. I asked John Spano, who's a philosopher, and he did not agree with that. And I said, well, so much for Wikipedia, because that's what they said. He famously said, this is a quote that most of us have heard before, there is a darkness without, and when I die, there'll be a darkness within. I mean, it's really uplifting. It's inspiring. It's like, go get him, right? Now, his daughter, though, became a Christian. But she said, my dad, one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, could not, would not become a Christian because there was a barrier to him becoming a Christian. And oh man, you know, I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, what's the barrier? What's the barrier? And the answer was Christians. Christians were the barrier. And I started thinking, okay, what was it about us? Is it our neuroticness? Is it that we're so weird? Is it because we're hokey? Is it because we try to do music and we just can't do the music? We try to imitate culture and we just get... Is it because we're anti-intellectual? And he was an intellectual? What was it? She answers this way. I would have liked to convince my father that I had found what he had been looking for, the ineffable something. In other words, the something that I had to look it up, inexpressible something, something without borders and boundaries. It's this solid joy that he had longed for all his life. I would have liked to persuade him that the search for God does not have to be in vain, but it was hopeless He had known too many Christians, bleak moralists who sucked the joy from life and persecuted their opponents. He would never have been able to see the truth the Christians were hiding. He couldn't see the truth because the Christians hid it. For Russell, he saw Christians, he saw Christianity sucking the joy out of life. And Jesus' first sign, he says, I release it. You want to know what Christianity is, Jesus says? John says, do you want to know who Jesus is? He releases. He releases joy into life. This is so important, y'all. If we, I'm talking to Christians, I'm talking to you that go to church now. If we miss Jesus' first sign, if we miss that he's the 
He's the author of joy. He's the master of joy. He's the wine of life. He's the master of the feast. If we miss that he releases solid joy into hearts and lives and relationships and communities and work and art and literature and movies and a sunset and a walk on the beach and good food and wonderful conversation that he releases joy into these things. And then he invites you and he invites me and he invites our neighbors and he invites everyone to this party. If we miss that, we will suck the joy from life and be a bleak moralist. And you know how we can find us if we're a bleak moralist? Because we're the unhappy people. We're the ones that are living lives of quiet desperation because we're trying to do the impossible. What's the impossible, Jeff? Well, what this text is saying, a bleak moralist is, it's someone now who is trying to turn water into wine in their own life. In other words, it, Jesus either turns water into wine or you will try to turn water into wine. You will try to turn your marriage into wine. You will try to turn your kids into wine. You will try to turn your career into wine. You will try to turn human approval into wine. You will try to turn successes and accomplishments and achievements into wine. You will try to turn your gifts and your talents and your abilities into wine. You will try to do what you can't. Where are you trying to turn water into wine? This text doesn't say specifically where, but the Bible as a whole kind of gives a hint elsewhere, and Jesus says, listen, all you who are weary, in other words, where are you exhausted? And where are you overburdened? Where are you anxious? Wherever these painful emotions of exhaustion and anxiety and being overburdened are, you're probably trying to turn water into wine in that area. Some of you, though, I know are, I know you're thinking this because I know you. You're thinking, okay, Jeff, but what about reverence, dude? What about the fear of God? What about holiness and the pursuit of holiness and duty? All this joy, joy, joy. Here's my response, and I'm trying to be nice because I've, I've taken a New Year's resolution. And I'm trying to be a nicer person. <laughs> to those kind of people, right? And so I'm, I'm, here's my nice response. What about it? What about it? This is the first sign. So whatever fearing God means biblically, whatever duty means biblically, whatever holiness means biblically, whatever reverence means biblically, it must release joy into the world or it's not biblical. It's not real Christianity. It's bleak moralism. Okay. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Eventually, life runs out of wine, but Jesus doesn't. 
He's the master of joy, right? So here's the question. How does he turn your water into wine? So you, you want to see your water because you can't turn water in your life into wine, but he can't. How does he do that? How would he turn your marriage into wine? How would he turn your parenting into wine? How would he turn the way you handle money into wine? How would he do that? How would he release solid joy into your life? and into your relationships and your friendships and a church and its mission and yada, yada. I want you to look at the exchange between Jesus and his mom in verses 4 and 5. I want you to, this exchange is absolutely stunning because it's completely weird. Um, I want to tell you right off the bat that there are probably more print on this passage in commentaries on this exchange than any other part of this passage. In other words, all the scholars, all the commentaries are in complete chaos. No one is in agreement over what this means. There's no universal agreement over what this means. But there is one universal agreement that all the scholars and all the folks that know the, the Hebrew world, the, the Greek world, and the Roman world, they all know that nowhere in any piece of literature, in any written document, anything that can be recorded or codified or systematized or in a book, nowhere on the planet in that world does a son ever call his mom woman. So something's going on here. What is going on, y'all? I want you to look at what Jesus does say. It's kind of breathtaking. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, here's the deal. My hour for John. So this is the, the writer of John. When John uses that word, my hour, this is the first time. He's going to use it now throughout the rest of his gospel. Every other time, other than this one right now, because we don't know what it means. Every other time that he says it, my hour refers to the hour of his death and the hour of his resurrection. So we could say it's the cross hour. It's the resurrection hour. It refers to the work that Jesus does when he dies because his work is, his dying is a doing. His dying is accomplishing. His dying is working. And when he rises, it's a work. He's performing something. He's accomplishing something. He's doing something when he rises, when he dies, and when he rises. And so what's happening here, the weirdness here is that the cross hour and the resurrection hour is not yet come. It's not my time. But the sign of it is here. In other words, Jesus' death, Jesus' dying, releases joy into the world. It turns water into wine. It turns marriages into wine. It turns hearts into wine. It erases the stain of sin. Have any of you ever gotten wine on a white shirt? I've done everything. The stain of wine goes deeper than the stain of sin and erases it, cleanses it, heals it. And the resurrection... The resurrection ends the drought of joy. The resurrection carries 
joy because joy is a property of God. And the resurrection pushes it now into the world. So, how, how do you see Jesus turn water into wine? It's all about the hour. It's all about the hour. His death releases it. His resurrection releases it. So what are you to do? What am I to do? Well, what area of your life, if you're not a Christian, this is going to be the first time, if you are a Christian, there are areas of your life that you need the water turned to wine. What do you do? Well, look what the apostles do. Look at the last thing that's said about them. It said, when this happened, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana Galilee and manifested his glory. So he revealed himself. This is who he is. This is what he's like. This is what he's come to do. This is the first sign. This is the real Jesus. This is real Christianity. And his disciples believed in him. Now, the disciples already believed in him. So they're believing, believing again. So maybe you always are believing in Jesus. Maybe there are always areas of your life you need to believe him. Now, here's what's unique about John. John, when he says believe, he does this. He puts a preposition. It says literally this. They believed into him. For John, when you trust Jesus, you're believing into him. You're entering into his death. His death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. His joy becomes your joy. Whoever he is is now who you are. You find yourself in him. So, what are you waiting for? This is an invitation to a party. This is an invitation to solid joy. Believe into him. 